Good morning. I hope you had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas day together. We had a wonderful Christmas Eve service. And what I'd like to do this morning in each of these three morning services is to, in some way, shape, or form, reflect upon the significance of what has taken place. And for that, I'd like for you and for me to make our way in our Bibles to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, John has a way of bringing about the Christmas story differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Because if you were to take Matthew and Luke, you would find that they begin with the Bethlehem story. If you take Mark, he goes to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry with people in terms of the Jordan River. But what distinguishes John is that he doesn't deal at the onset with an act in history. Rather, he steps into previous eternity. And what he wants to do for you and for me now is to understand the significance of the planning that went into that Bethlehem story and how the second member of the Trinity was designated to be the one to enter into this world to die for your sins and mine. So we're going to look today at the story behind the story and try to understand the whys to the Bethlehem story. Well, I'm going to read to you chapter 1, verse 1, and then 14 through 18. This morning, our primary emphasis, in fact, our exclusive emphasis, expositionally, is going to be one verse, in verse 14. In chapter 1, verse 1, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now draw a line over to verse 14, we'll continue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There is so much truth compacted in such a minute space that we're going to have to take our time and think this through in a way that honors God and relates to our lives. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thanking you this morning for the incredible story that links Bethlehem to Calvary and then links across to an empty tomb that links a first coming to a second coming, that links eternity to history and links together Jesus with us. We want to be able to sample the, both the depth and the breadth of what's here and allow it to penetrate our souls in deep ways. We want it to make a difference in the way in which we live our life subsequent to our worship this morning. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wheels 
We've come here again to see Jesus. And him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. When Peter Kingston, a missionary to Brazil, was translating the Gospel of John for a particular tribal people, you know what he did? He left the first 14 verses of the opening chapter of John to be done last. That passage, he writes, was a crucial passage, not only because of its placement in the book, but also because of its doctrinal content. Now, it was late, late afternoon, when he finally arrived at the very last verse, verse 14. And he tells the story. With me was Timoteo, a young man with a highly astute mind, who was seeking God one of the best translation helpers in the region. We began to grapple with a tremendous sentence, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And it took a lot of time and effort to get that verse right in their language. Now, the sun was not so hot at the beginning, though the air was heavy and humid, But as the day wore on, gnats circled in agitated clouds above us. The heat rose, the sun slipped down further, the mosquitoes began to buzz and whine impatiently, anxious for an evening meal, and soon it would be dark. But still we talked on, trying to understand what one verse was really saying, what it meant for the Word to become a human being and how it came about, and what grace was, and what glory was, and how a man could be full, not of food or of anger, but of truth, and how this could be translated into the tribal language, we're told. Finally, after more struggling, Tomateo grasped the full meaning And together they went over the verse, and Peter carefully copied it down to complete his first draft. With a sigh of relief, he was finished. He could go back to his house and get something to eat and sleep with the satisfaction of having jumped another hurdle in his ministry as a Wycliffe Bible translator. But for Timoteo, there was a tremendous sense of release as well. Incredibly, there was a feeling of exhilaration as he ran across the entire village shouting, Everybody, come and listen to this. This person called Jesus Christ was not just a spiritual being as we thought. He was a man at the same time. He was two and yet one And the people gathered around, and a lively discussion followed. Forgetting his hunger, Peter, the Wycliffe translator, stood and listened. 
fascinated to hear a man expertly explain one of the very deepest of spiritual truths to an entire tribe, even though he had just understood it himself. What I want to do with you this morning is to look at the story behind the story. I want to grapple with you as to the way in which eternity broke into history. And to do it, you and I immediately spotted, didn't we, that when we connected verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 14 of that same chapter, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, The word is referenced. In verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then again in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now what's critically important as we plunge into the depths of this is that in your Old Testament, it is the word that God used as the means of bringing the creation into existence. Hebrew word, devah. And God said. And God said. And God said. What is fascinating to us is the connection of John chapter 1 opening verses to Genesis and how it unfolds. But what I want us to fully comprehend here is this. The Jewish people, as they would read the Older Testament in particular, when they came across the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, not wanting in their estimation to violate the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, they would substitute a word for Yahweh. And you know what word they substituted for Yahweh was? Word. So in their Bibles, whenever they came across the name for Yahweh, or in our English, if you are reading carefully, and notice the capital L-O-R-D in your Older Testament, When they got to that word, they replaced that word with the word, if you're following what I'm now saying. What we want to do now is to begin to recognize that God's on to them. And the Gospel of John, in essence, is a gospel tract that is meant to grip the mind and the heart of the reader and force them to think seriously about God who he is, God, and how he works. And so using now chapter 1, verse 14, is our pivotal point for exposition this morning, and noticing how not once, twice, three times, but four times, the word, the word, is used each and every time for emphasis to attract that Jewish mindset in particular with the idea that we are dealing with the deep matters of God. What I want to do with you, with only one verse, verse 14, is to draw out five distinctives of Jesus Christ that are found in this one verse. Linking it 
to the Old Testament, linking it to your heart and mine. Let's start with the first phrase, and it's this. And the Word became flesh. Draw a line now back from verse 14 to verse 1. And let's begin to work verse 1 very carefully and link it to verse 14. In the beginning, you and I are told, was the Word. Notice that it does not read, in the beginning, became the Word. In other words, before there was a beginning in time, there was Jesus, second member of the Trinity. What I want us to understand in that opening phrase with regard to the Word is that he is eternal. This is the eternity of the second member of the Trinity that is standing before your very eyes and my very eyes. This is going to be critical because God is going to want to talk eventually about eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if you are going to have everlasting life, as John 3.16 talks about, you better have an everlasting Savior. And so we begin with this phrase, in the beginning was the word that in the beginning became the word. Now he's already introduced you into that whole matter of before time began. So when you think about the Genesis 1-1 in the count, and how in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that was not the beginning of Jesus. That was the beginning of time. Jesus lived before time began. In the beginning was not became the word, then you have now linked Genesis 1-1 with John 1-1, but you don't end there. In the beginning was the word, comma, and the word was with God. I want you to notice the withness here. There is fellowship within the Godhead. In other words, buzzword of the day, community. In other words, not only do we have eternity, in the beginning was the Word, not became. In the beginning was the Word, but secondly, and the Word was with God. Community combined with eternity. So there was no loneliness before time began because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, had an eternally perfect relationship with one another. So in this world today where you find the political pundits looking for a way to create community, our template, frankly, is John 1.1. We've got the Godhead here, an eternal relationship which astounds us where at that point on the cross where Jesus, second member of the Trinity, would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There has been a rupture in relationship where sin not found within Christ, but my sin, Highlander's sin, and our sin placed upon Christ, powerfully interacts with the John 1 1 statement, in the beginning was the word eternity, 
and the word was with God, community. And now thirdly and astoundingly, and the word was God. That is deity. That is Jesus. Three times in that first verse. There's a word from above. Now, if you were tracking the best of the news of this past week, you and I know that anybody can dial a wrong number. It's not often, though, it happens from outer space. But British astronaut Tim Peake from Great Britain tweeted an apology all times on Christmas Day from the International Space Station after calling a wrong number. He then wrote, I'd like to apologize to the lady I just called by mistake, saying, hello, is this planet Earth? (laughs) Evidently, he didn't tell us uh, who he was calling but it was a wrong message from above. We got the right message from above. In the beginning was the word, not became. Eternity. And the word was with God. Community. And the word was God. Deity. And he links Genesis 1-1 to John 1-1 and does so in such a brilliant manner. But what fascinates me as we get to that point where we are describing deity is that we still link with Genesis such as in chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In other words, there was more than one in the one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now what you have done thus far, in the beginning was the Word, eternity, and the Word was with God, community, and the Word was God, deity. We've got one aspect of what was necessary for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice to die in our place on a cross. Because if he was deity, that addresses the issue of only God could pay the penalty because God is perfect. But now you draw a line to verse 14 and notice what comes next. And the word became flesh. That is humanity. And all at once, by drawing that one line from 1 to 14, you have connected deity to humanity, and now you have two natures in one person. That means, then, that not only do we have one who could pay the penalty, divinity, but furthermore, we have only one who should pay pay the penalty, humanity, two natures in one person, and you have reached into eternity past and allow the sovereign 
plan found in the person of Christ to break into not only time, but into your mindset to begin to think seriously about the significance, the meaning, the story behind the story of Bethlehem, you see. Onward to the cross, you see. And you begin to fit the four, the words together in 1 and 14. Now you've done that. What is interesting to me was that there was a controversy in the 3rd century A.D. There was a man by the name of Arius, and anybody who goes into the pastorate or becomes a Bible professor has to study church histories deeply and widely. And Arius argued that Jesus Christ, second member as you and I view it of the Trinity, in his estimation was something less than the first member of the Trinity. It's called subordination. There was another man who came along by the name of Athanasius who argued stringently against this. But Arius' mindset carries on to this very day. Whenever a Jehovah's Witness appears at your door, they're basically following in the footsteps of the heresy of Arius. And when you're able to refute that person, as you stand there talking to them at the door, you are following in the footsteps of Athanasius, who was able to use such verses as John 1.14 in particular to argue effectively that Jesus Christ is the second member of the Trinity, spiritual equality, yet practical authority, God the Father sent God the Son into this world to die for our sins. And the word became flesh. There's now the became. He became flesh. Now you've tied together divinity and humanity, and you begin to ponder the significance of all this. And perhaps your mind at this point would go to a tremendous passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to this. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, sharing flesh and blood. You raise your hand and you ask him why. And here's the answer from the writer. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So we see here now, we've got the perfectly designed one, divinity and humanity, two natures in one person, to step into the chaos that sin has produced in this world. I clipped out an article from the San Bernardino, California tragedy. And before the local SWAT team arrived on the scene of the San Bernardino shooting massacre, Dr. Michael Nikki was already there arriving just minutes after the shooting began. The call came in on the radio. There's an active shooter scenario in San Bernardino, said Dr. Niki, an emergency room doctor at the regional medical center where this took place. Quote, I just hop in the car with my tactical equipment, my medical gear, go to the scene, Often I don't have time to notify anybody, I just go. Pulling up in front of the regional center, Niki immediately, and listen to this, 
not only pulled out his medical gear, but began suiting up in his military boots, helmet and Kevlar vest, and checked his assault rifle. Eerily similar to the one being used by the shooters. Without waiting for the rest of his SWAT team, he grabbed his medical pack and headed into the chaos of the moment. At the time that you go in, it's still an active situation. You've got to be prepared for what you will encounter. It was one of the most organized scenes I had ever seen, but you could feel the energy of worry. The police were arriving. They were worried that if the shooters were still in the building, there's going to be more victims. There were a lot of head injuries, chest injuries. They didn't have a good chance of surviving, Nikki said as he arrived on the scene. And I'm very sad. Quote, I'm looking for some good news in the midst of this story. When you seek to save people from such chaos. He's looking for such good news in this story. He wanted to save people from such chaos. Grips our attention. What fascinates me is that he didn't go in with his medical bag and not his assault rifle, nor did he enter with his assault rifle, but not his medical bag. There was dual equipping. Now, what I'm arguing for is with divinity and humanity, there is dual equipping. As the second member of the Trinity, the eternal God-man entered into this world to die for our sins. And the Word became flesh. And as you continuously link this to your Old Testament, even your Old Testament prepares us for this understanding of the twofold nature of Jesus. Because in Genesis 3.15, the promise was given to Eve and to Adam and even to the evil one in particular, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, humanity. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you say, well, Gary, there's the humanity in Genesis. What about the other nature and deity? It leads us to this second distinctive found in John 1.14. Not only does it read, and the word became flesh, but it reads furthermore, and dwelt among us. And as he is continuously working off of the Genesis paradigm, you and I would be having our minds and our thoughts and our eyes drawn to what was promised in Genesis 9 verse 27. 
where God now addressing the, the sons of Noah says through Noah, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now the hymn refers not to Japheth, but to God. And Shem refers to Sem, the Semites. The word dwell means literally to tabernacle. And what God is now saying is that not only from the Genesis 3.15 that there will be humanity in this promised one who comes from woman, but furthermore in this promise there will be deity in this promised one. He will dwell. The word dwell that was promised here is the idea that God will dwell. God will dwell in this Semite, this Shemite. And what was Jesus but a Semite? And now the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you see. And the word here is the word tabernacled. Tabernacled. Now, if you and I were tracing the movements of the tabernacle in the Old Testament strategy of God, then what is taking place now with John's writing is this. He is moving us historically from the Genesis book to the Exodus book, where Moses was told by God he was to construct a tabernacle. It was to be the dwelling place, you see, of God. Now, when the Israelites would be moving, they would move in formation. There would be three tribes to the north, and there would be tribes to the south, tribes to the east, tribes to the west. But what all these tribes had in common was this. The tabernacle was always central. Bring it home. When you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God tabernacles within you. You see, dwells within you. Now the question is, As you look at your relationship with God, does he remain central to this very day? Whether you are stationary or you are moving forward from place to place in your life experience and journey. This is what God was teaching the Israelites. The tabernacle was to be central to God's people, and so he is for us today. Not only do you emphasize the centrality of the movements of the tabernacle, as now John has guided us from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus to Numbers and so on to Deuteronomy, as they move towards that promised land. Not only are we dealing with the centrality of this tabernacle, You and I, furthermore, are dealing with the whole matter of the sacrifice of this tabernacle. 
because we are dealing with lambs being slain. All of which is an indicator of the ultimate lamb who is to be slain. And John the Baptist would pick up on that very idea. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the older Testament, what you and I would find is that Moses would go into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. But today, God comes into us. What is the bridge? No, the question is, who is the bridge? And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you see the transitions of life? Moses goes in. Jesus comes to be with. As the result of dying on that cross with the dual nature, divinity and humanity, two natures in one person, God now tabernacles within. But not only are you connecting deity and humanity, and furthermore, eternity with history, and furthermore, Bethlehem with Calvary, you are also connecting first and second comings of the one that you and I know here in this verse as the word, because in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, that day is coming. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You have now connected also first coming and second coming as this weaves itself together in this divine strategy that God himself has prepared an eternity past between the first, second, and third members of the Trinity. And you're still in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And thirdly, and we have seen his glory. And as you read that, you know that he's continuously working off of what Moses was inspired by God to pen. And I want this now, what I'm about to read, stir your heart to worship. I want you to link now Christ tabernacling among us. Tabernacling. Well, Greek word to tabernacle. And we have seen his glory. The Hebrew word would have been davah. In other words, glory means heavy, which means you don't take this lightly. And link tabernacle to glory, where the last verses of the book of Exodus read as follows. In Exodus 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled what? The tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And now what you and I realize is that if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, God is tabernacling within us, and we are bringing this tabernacle wherever we go in our life journeys, and we are bringing the glory of God with us. Wherever we go. And doesn't in there. Here's your fourth distinctive. Glory of the only Son from the Father. Now he wants to be able to distinguish within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Three and one. Glory of the only Son from the Father. And if you and I were beginning to do a study of the word glory in the book of John, we realize that when John presents Jesus in the various ways that Jesus did his miracles, the first miracle launching pad was at the wedding in Cana, of Galilee, and in John 2, verse 11, you and I are informed that this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and did what? Manifested his glory. In other words, he's saying, don't take me lightly. And in that great high priestly prayer of where, once again, John, Chapter 17, verse 24, listen to what I describe as the glory exchange. Where in verse 24 of the 17th chapter, Father, I desire, Jesus is praying to God the Father as he is God the Son. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And now you're back to John 1, 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And you are seeing here the divine preparation of the divine person Two natures, one person, prepared to die for our sins. When we were vacationing in Boston a few years back, Pam and I went into the Oyster House. It's been around a long time. 
and took our seats, one of my favorite places to be when I can get back to New England. And the table I sat down at, I looked up and there was a plaque of Daniel Webster. I read that Daniel Webster used to dine at that table. Now, Daniel Webster was one of the greatest orators politically in our nation. Became Secretary of State in the 1800s. There were those within his party that thought that he was the most qualified in the entire nation to become president. As I sat there and I looked at that, at that plaque, I was reminded of this story of Daniel Webster when he was in the prime of his political leadership when he had stated his belief in both the divinity as well as the humanity of Jesus Christ and his dependence upon Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And it was in that oyster house that one asked him this question, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? And Webster, brilliant mind, quickly replied, no, sir, I cannot fully comprehend it, though I've reflected upon John 1 to understand it. If I could fully comprehend him, he would be no greater than myself. For you see, I feel that I need a superhuman Savior. I need a divine human Savior to be the perfect sacrifice to die in my place for my sins. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the the only son from the father, means distinctive, unique. I like the wording here. But fifthly, full of grace and truth. Now, if you were to draw a line now, the phrase full of grace and truth, back to chapter 1, verse 4, you're doing well. Because you're going to want to link grace with life and truth with light. Grace. God's unmerited favor given to you and to me. We do not deserve it, but by God's grace we receive salvation in Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ there is fullness of grace. And in Jesus Christ there is fullness of truth. And there would come a time that John, of course, would pull this together at the cross of Jesus Christ. And as Pilate was interviewing Jesus and posing tough questions prior to that cross, Pilate said to him, So you're a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? There's a better question than that. Who is truth? Full of grace and truth. 
this is your Savior. Five distinctives in just one verse. And Aslan, as he approaches Lucy, you know Aslan, of course, is the Christ symbol in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. She's been looking for such a long time now, wondering where he is. And all of a sudden, he just appears. And as she looks at him and gazes into his large, wise face, he says, Welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, answered he. Lucy, not because you are, think eternity. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And as you grow in grace and truth, people, you will find that your sovereign God is bigger and bigger and bigger as you comprehend the depths and the breadth of who He is and what He has done through Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Thank you, Father, for giving us the story behind the story and the significance of who Christ is and, as a result, the significance of what Christ has done and why Bethlehem is so important because it links us to the cross. And how two natures are so important because they link us to the cross. And how eternity and history come together in this story that has no end. So thank you, Father, for who you are and what you've done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, for which we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.